dynamic voices for a diverse church. This is Pass the Mic. Greetings and God bless. Welcome to another episode of Pass the Mic, dynamic voices for a diverse church, powered by the Reformed African American Network. I'm your host for this episode, Tyler Burns. You can follow me on Twitter at Burns23. And we also have Jamar Tisby on the line as well, who recorded without me last week, but it's okay. It was good. <laughs> I, well, you've done it. You've done it to me before, so sometimes we got to spread the goodness out. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just want to thank all of you who are listening and who have downloaded the episodes recently. We received some excellent feedback from a number of the interviews and podcasts that we've done. Uh, we also want to draw attention to some of the amazing things that are happening on the Reformed African American Network website, um, which is uh, a couple of the people who have been contributing frequently to us. Um, Ikemeni Uwan with a recap of the, the Gospel Coalition Women's National Conference, which was an excellent article. Also you, Jamar, for the meaning of the 4th of July, which is always a popular topic um, when we <laughs> talk about Frederick Douglass. Hey, Douglass brought it. All I did was repost. <laughs> That's right. And we also, I also want to give a shout out to Drew Gardner. Now, and correct me if I'm wrong, Jamar, but Drew started listening to the podcast, enjoyed it, eventually joined the Pass the Mic Facebook group, and now he's written two articles for Rand. Is that correct? I think it's two, yeah. He's 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 become an active participant. I, I love his story and, and want more of so, them. So if we were if we were on a video chat, what I would say to the audience is I would show them the meme of this could be us, but you playing, you know, type of thing. So if you like Pass the Mic, you probably have something valuable to say on Rand Network. So please pitch and sub- and and submit some content to us because we know that we have some great listeners. So I just want to throw that out there, you guys. And just email us. Submit. Yeah, email yes, submit please. at randnetwork.org. Submit at randnetwork.org. Excellent. Okay, so I'm excited about today's episode, Jamar, because every time this special guest has been on, I haven't been on, so I've started to wonder, is this a conspiracy? Um, I really want to I'm just being selfish. With her. I, kept, I kept requesting you. I don't know what was going on. <laughs> I didn't want to share the goodness. All the episodes were so good. Every episode was so good, and I listened to it multiple times. I'm like, man. Ah, man. So, Jamar, introduce our guest. So, so our guest, Bo and I were talking about this before the show. We just feel like we should call you doctor already. Um, I know you're in the process, but it it just, it's fitting. So, uh, the Honorable Dr. Karen Ellis is with us. Um, She is an eminent scholar uh, in in, uh, the church worldwide, globally. And every time she comes on, she has this incredible sense of compassion and awareness and insightfulness that we benefit from. And so personally, I have really valued your voice, Karen, because it's it's opened, it's expanded my horizons of concern toward the global church, which is what yes. Christ cares about too. So uh, I just can't say how much we appreciate you know you serving the kingdom in this way. It's great to have you on again. I appreciate being here. I mean, the global church is us. So um, you know, it's, 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 uh, kind of sometimes framed like, uh, you know, an over there kind of thing, but I always feel like whatever's happening to the global church is, um, is family business. Mm. So I'm really grateful for you guys to, uh, give me another chance to just talk about how some of the dynamics that we're seeing 
around the world are affecting uh, the church overseas, but also, you know, things are starting to happen closer to home. So, you know, it's good for us to all get together and ask ourselves, what do these things mean for today? What do they mean for the future? How did we get to this point? So it's a great opportunity. I appreciate it. Well, it, it's it's an urgent opportunity as well. Uh, as you said, things are happening more frequently and even closer to home. In these past couple of weeks, it, it has been a whirlwind of event after event, um, and all of them, you know, tragic in in their own way. So we wanted to get you on to help us think through these things um, Christianly and biblically. So there have been an increasing number of bombings and attacks all around the world. Um, but in, in the past couple of weeks, there's been Turkey, Bangladesh, Iraq. Um, and I, I think even just today, there, as of this recording, there was an attack in, in Saudi Arabia as well. So Three. Three. Three, yeah, yeah three. three separate wow. um, attacks. So, Karen, can you give us a rundown maybe of, of, of some of these major international events? We haven't even talked about Turkey, which happened a couple of weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll be honest with you. National security is not my area of research. I have friends who've made a study out of um, uh, national security and uh, terrorism and warfare. But I do work with a lot of the dynamics that national security questions bring. So, I'm happy to talk about um, some of these recent atrocities and maybe even bring some of their thoughts into the conversation uh, to an audience that wouldn't necessarily have access to them. Um, Let's see, the first, uh, I think probably the one that was entered into all of our consciousness was Orlando because it was on our own shores, in our own backyard. Um, And that was, no matter what anybody tries to tell you, the motivation behind that attack by Omar Mateen was to please the Islamic State. Those are his words. Mm. And, um, you know, we are a people that value, you know, the uh, the primary source and the, right. the references of the primary source. So this is what he says his motivation was. I know that there are a number of progressive voices who seized on the opportunity to blame Christians for that. But um, and I think we should probably expect more and more of that kind of blame shifting in the days to come. But even this was even in the face of what was a clearly stated motive. motive. So it's that's. That kind of blame shifting is par for the course. It's totally Neronian, right? It's totally from the, the uh, Nero in the early church. Right. Next thing that was on our radar was Istanbul. Um, Tuesday night, uh, three suspected Islamic State, Islamic State militants uh, had a brazen assault on Turkey's main airport. They exploded their suicide vests after they had gunned down a number of passengers and airport staff. About 45 people were killed in that. Um, and that was that was an attention grabber, not just because of the numbers, but because um, the Ataturk Airport in Istanbul is probably one of the busiest hubs in Europe mm-hmm. and in the Middle East, and it's among one. It's among the most fortified. And I'll, so that was. I'll tell you how close to how, how small the world is. So there is a a couple. The husband goes to Reform Theological Seminary here in Jackson. His wife is from. Uh, somewhere in the Netherlands, they had mm-hmm. flown home to visit her family. They had left the airport 45 minutes before the bomb went off. Sheesh. Yeah, wow. it wow. was so scary. And wow. that, you know, we're yeah. here in little old Jackson, Mississippi, and yet an event, you know, across an ocean yeah. and on another continent, it's that close yeah. to home. It is, it is. And that's that's just, you know, more more evidence of how globalized uh, and localized we are, right. you know. Um, some people are saying now that Turkey and the Islamic State, because of this event, 
are headed toward outright war. Um, but it's changed mm -hmm. a lot of things. It's, it's, it's affected their tourism. It's affected their industry, their economy. Um, essentially because of there was a holiday, a lot of people left for the holiday, but because of that and because of the security concerns, um, Istanbul has been a ghost town the last few days. Mm -hmm. So uh, next on our radar after that was Dhaka, um, gunmen who we believe were linked to the Islamic State. They raided a cafe in a very upscale neighborhood in Bangladesh. It was a 10-hour standoff. And finally, the authorities went in and stormed the establishment. Um, at least 20 of the hostages, uh, mostly Italian and Japanese nationals. And now we just know that uh, there were some U.S. college students mm. also among them were uh, had died at those hands, those militants' hands. So with that one, we started to say, okay, wait a minute. The Islamic State's reach is growing way beyond the Middle East. You know, you look at Orlando, you look at Dhaka and Bangladesh. Then there was Baghdad over the weekend. Mm -hmm. And the early hours of Sunday morning while we were all sleeping, Hundreds of Iraqis got together um, because it's right now it's Ramadan, and we're going to get into that, I hope, a little bit in the podcast, the significance of that. Yeah. But they're gathering because it's, you know, Ramadan is a very um, community-oriented event, very family-oriented event. You know, you fast together, you break the fast together. Um, you know, people go to buffets to break the fast and, you know, in the evenings. And that blast killed, I think the death toll is crested 200 now. Yes. Uh, lots of... Yeah, lots of children, whole families, because they were eating together, right? They were at the mall together. Um, what's interesting about it is this was Baghdad's eighth terror attack since February. Wow. But nobody said anything mm. about Baghdad. Nobody changed their flags on their Facebook or their Twitter because, well, you know, we have this consciousness where we assume that this is Baghdad, this is Iraq, there's going to be terror attacks. But they've been dealing with this actually even much longer than anybody else who's experienced an attack this year. Mm. So then the, they were targeted because they're Shias. Um, that's a choice target for the Sunni extremist group, um, uh, Islamic State. So you take all of those into account, um, and then the things that we don't hear about as well. Um, how did we get here? Uh, we could talk a little bit about you know the edict that was issued for Ramadan, if you want. Yeah, let's talk about that. I mean, uh, give us... Uh, a quick overview of, of, of Ramadan as a holy season, but then is are, are, is the frequency of attacks linked to it being Ramadan, or is it just picking up in frequency because it's getting more violent? Well, there are a couple, there are a couple of things that are feeding into that. It is, yeah, well, as you say, it is um, the Islamic State is is intentionally expanding its reach. Uh, I don't think we can deny that anymore. They had a serious um, defeat at Fallujah. Right. Uh, but then uh, they said, well, we may be out of Fallujah, but we're not done globally. And so it's part of that. Part of it also is um, there was the Islamic State called for, they called it four weeks of pain for the infidel. Mm. And so that's what they wanted Ramadan to be. There was one particular um, cleric who called for it. And so everybody started watching at the beginning of Ramadan. And then if you think through it, Ramadan isn't really fasting, but it's just changing day life to night life, right? So you actually eat in the evening as opposed to during the day. Got it. Okay. But people, you know, you're, you're actually have changed your routine and you're not eating. So hostilities towards the end of Ramadan rise as people get more and more cranky. So there's yeah. a lot of things that are, that are feeding into it. And, um, and, you know, the things that, um, just on a personal level, on a personal interaction level, you start to have a lot more conflict between groups because of the, the fasting phenomenon. 
So what does that mean, four weeks of pain for the infidels? Um, Huge death toll after all of that. Who's the infidel, according to the Islamic State? Anybody who's not a Muslim, anybody who doesn't believe in their narrow interpretation of Islam. So any Muslim who's not a part of the Sunni sect. So you've got lots of different sects within Islam. You've got Shias, you've got Sufis, you've got Baha'is, you've got Ahmadiyyas. Um, and that sectarianism is driven by each group who believes to be the successor of Muhammad. Mm. So two different successors produce two different streams of Islam with different expressions and different different eschatological expectations. Shias, on one hand, are looking for the establishment of an imamate, whereas Sunnis are looking for the establishment of a caliphate. Okay. An imamate would be more clerical or right they're okay. looking for someone who is um who is uh, raised up for example like um iran iran is mostly shia okay they also have a different language so they're one step removed from the those their language is persian mm-hmm. in iran um, they're one step removed from the holy language of islam is arabic so now you can see there's there's always there's sort of a supposed to be an irreconcilable difference between the shias and the sunnis because of this split. And so now you see why they had this huge attack mm. on, uh, on Baghdad. They were targeting Shiites because they're essentially, in their world, they're in the Islamic State's world, they're doing Islam wrong. Mm. Okay, so they're as much a target as a Christian wow. or, a, or a gay nightclub or anybody. They're, they come under the uh, umbrella of Islamic State's concept of the infidel. So, I mean, the... Um, there's a guy named um, Hassan Hassan who wrote a book called ISIS, Inside the Army of Terror. He wrote a great piece uh, recently for the Carnegie, Carnegie Endowment for Peace, and it helps us understand how sectarianism figures into what ISIS is doing. So if you want to follow up with that, just take a look at it. And um, he says you can't blame any one ideology for the Islamic State's extremism. It's a product of a hybridization of a bunch of different um, – elements, Wahhabism, Salafism, um, all these different elements, and then all this literature of ideologues that came along in the 70s. So they've kind of cobbled together a whole bunch of different influences to arrive to where they are. But this spokesman who called for this, um, this month, four weeks of pain for the infidels, he told the supporters that they had God's permission to kill infidels during Ramadan. Hmm. Ramadan started in June. And so for four, those four weeks, people from Orlando to the Philippines have lost their lives at the hands of ISIS extremists. And, and this latest, this most recent attack in Saudi Arabia, uh, I was reading, is, is even an escalation because it was in or near Medina, which is the second holiest site in Islam. And up to now, those religious sites haven't been as, as targeted or targeted at all. This is like crossing, crossing even more red lines or something like that. Can you speak to that at well, all? Well, and what's right. And so, you know, I thought when I saw that the, they were, there were bombings in Saudi Arabia, I thought that's odd because to me it was odd because the Islamic State, they're uh, practicing, they're Sunnis. Mm-hmm. And so are Saudi, so the Saudi, Saudi Arabia is, uh, the, the kingdom of Saud is Sunni. And so I'm like, wait a minute now. Wait a minute, now we've got Sunni on Sunni. So what the speculation is, is that they're trying to unseat the Saudi monarchy. Wow. Mm. Wow. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's a political coup on top of right. terrorism. Right. 
Right. There is, in Islam, there's no separation between mosque and state, right? right? Mm -hmm. So there's a political, there's political jihad, there's um, violent jihad, and they both have the same end goal, is to establish the caliphate. Now, let me ask you this, Dr. Ellis, as far as what gets reported, you kind of mentioned it a little bit um, earlier when you talked about maybe the lack of attention that we pay to attacks that have happened on June 9th and May 17th and May 11th, all in the Baghdad area. Mm -hmm. What do you think, what is driving what gets reported? And why is the conversation that we're having about this not as nuanced as you're explaining now? Well, there are a lot of things that drive what gets reported. Um, I would say that politics has a lot to do with it. I would say political correctness has a lot to do with it. Um, there's a lot of difficulty, I think, among the media in navigating, um, the different sects of, um, of Islam and their motivations for doing things. Um, I think there's also a, there may be an ethnic element to it as well. Boko Haram in Nigeria. Okay. ISIS killed about 11,000 people in 2015. Mm-hmm. Um, Sunni militants, um, that were in ISIS, they dominated the headlines in 2015, but Boko Haram is killing more people than ever. Wow. They're, t- wow. they're eclipsing the tally of their part, and they're partnered with um, Islamic State. But nobody's talking about Boko, Boko Haram except for the, um, the, uh, the girls that were kidnapped from Chibok. So the, the schoolgirls that were yeah. kidnapped, yeah. who still, there's been 800 some odd days uh. and they still haven't found most of them. So between Boko Haram and ISIS, that accounted for more than half of the world's terrorism-related deaths in 2014 and 2015. So that's so you have to ask yourself, what are these dynamics that are driving them? So I think it's a combination of political correctness. I think it's a combination of um, who's who's favored in the media, um, whose administration is favored in the media. I think people that are less favorable favorable towards the Obama administration are probably going to be um, uh, they're probably going to take the larger stories and exploit those rather than continually exploiting the smaller stories. Uh, for folks who support the administration, uh, they're probably going to want to sweep both the larger and the smaller stories under the rug or minimize them, unless it's something that's just so absolutely horrific that you can't avoid having it reported. Now, what's interesting about um, the one in um, Baghdad, have you guys seen the pictures from that? Have you seen yes. any video from that? I have Did seen you see the pictures, the- but not, not the video. The scale of that attack, yeah. it, it looks nuclear. Mm-hmm. Mm. I mean, if you imagine what the Murrah building looked like when, uh, when the Oklahoma City bomber right. blew that up, right. magnify that by a city block. My goodness. It's huge. And they were saying it's huge. over half the people died in the fires that ensued, and they were trapped. Right. Yeah. Right. Wow. And these were truck bombs, right? So, mm. you know, and you think to yourself... What, what does drive, why, are, why is the number, uh, it's not numbers that drives it. It's the people that are involved. It's the lobbies that are behind those people that get the attention. It's, um, you know, okay, for example, we don't hear much about uh, Christians, uh, the effects of all these things on Christians. Right. We also don't hear a lot about the effects of them on other Muslims. Muslims actually suffer worst i think the worst at the hands of right. other muslims under under radical islamism mm. so yeah all of those things come into play politics culture lobbying money uh, economy media support 
Uh, Oh, I said politics already. Political correctness. Does ethnicity come into play because things taking place on the continent of Africa and you may be mm-hmm. in, in um, sub-Saharan parts of Africa versus the Middle East? Is that at all a factor, do you think? I think so. I, I, I mean, that's just my personal opinion, but I do think that yeah. ethnicity plays. And I think that we care quite a bit less about uh, – the media tends to care quite a bit less about uh, about what's happening in both you know, Al-Shabaab on the eastern uh, eastern side of Africa mm-hmm. is just as active. And what they're doing in Somalia and in Kenya and Tanzania, uh, very little was reported about this, the schoolyard massacre of the, of Garissa university. That was over, right. that was over 200 right. that were massacred. Yes. Very little heard about that. However, the response on social media was incredible. Um, so, you know, social media is really our way of getting those stories out and local, you know, using local media, that are reporting um, the stories that the national news should be. And it's, it's really our job to be sharing those things, that information. Well, but so, yeah, so, I, I definitely think there's an ethnic an ethnic aspect to it. Go ahead, Tyler. I, I was going to ask, so now transitioning to what it means for the church, both you know, in those areas and in the West, what is this? what should our response be? And, and your tone appears to be that this is something we should definitely be paying attention to and keep our eyes on, why should we be, and what are some things that we maybe, what are some things that we should be focusing on, and what are some things that kind of take secondary place Mm -hmm. in this discussion, uh, Mm -hmm. as far as what's most important? Well, let me just, uh, I'm going to qualify one thing that I said before, before I answer that question. There are news sites that are reporting this. They're just not mainstream. And so I would say among those that do a really good job our world news, uh, our world magazine, um, world magazine is great. Um, I have friends over there that are doing a fantastic job. Um, and then there are others as well. You can actually, if you go to the TGC women's conference and go to the panel on the persecuted church in particular, um, they also, those, the, 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 the organizations that they have listed at the end also do a great job with national and foreign policy news. So you can check that out on the um, TGC website, TGC Women's Conference for 2016. That said, um, I make I personally prioritize the global church because um, I I just believe John 17, you know, the Lord prayed, make us one. I believe those words were determinative by union with Christ. We are one. Mm-hmm. He refers to us as His body. We are the same body. So if um, you know if we lose an arm, we should feel it. Um, so I, I do prioritize that. I don't think that, uh, I think that it's a false dichotomy to say, well, there's a lot going on over here and we have so much happening here that we have to choose. I don't think that's the case. I think that there's room for both and, but that's my, that's my personal interpretation, um, of John 17. I think it's, I think that one biblical. of, I'm sorry, go ahead. I'm sorry. I think it's biblical, uh, but keep going. Cause you may answer my question. Yeah. You can find more on, um, on my website on that. Um, I've written a number of articles on that and how I, how I've, you know, kind of exegeted that out. But, um, uh, in terms of responding, I think just taking the conversation back to the concept of Islamic terrorism, because we could talk about broadly about, you know, global persecution, that's kind of a different issue from Islamic terrorism. Um, Islamic terrorism, it, obviously, it affects everybody. I mean, a pulse, a gay nightclub, um, a Shiite um, mall, or a mall where Shiites were attending, rather, I should say. 
um, Saudi Arabia. These are Sunnis who are supposedly practicing the same form of Islam, and they've been attacked. You know, so global terrorism is is truly that, and so that should be a concern for all of us, just on a purely humanitarian level. Um, so, how can we respond scripturally and practically? I think one of the most one of the most profound things we can do is to respond to our Muslim neighbors, not with a spirit of fear, but with sound mind. Um, it's funny that you guys should want to do this today because today is the day I'm actually slicing open dates, um, dates like the, the, the thing you eat, you know, <laughs> right, and I'm right, slicing yeah. them open and I'm taking out the pit and I'm putting in almonds and I'm doing this for our, our Muslim neighbor uh, because Ramadan ends for them today. And so I thought to myself, okay, how we've been, my husband and I have been really intentional about every time there's an attack, we go and we check on him to see how he's doing, to make sure people are treating him well, um, mm. to let him know that, you know, we appreciate him as a neighbor. Uh, we're glad he's here. We're glad, I'm really, we're really glad the Lord's put him in our neighborhood. Um, so I think one way is to, to respond practically is to let your Muslim neighbor know that you're watching out for them and you don't want anybody to treat them badly or ignorantly or violently. I'm not affirming anything Islamic by presenting my Muslim neighbor with a gift at the end of Ramadan. Um, it's just being thoughtful. I, I lose nothing by inviting a Muslim family in my neighborhood over for dinner. You just learn the dietary restrictions. A vegetarian meal is safe. Ask them what would they like to be. Uh, what would they like to eat, you know, and would pasta be okay, you know, mm -hmm. and um, get to know them that way and invite them into your home and then celebrate the life milestones with your neighbors. Start building up that goodwill now so that, um, so that they feel not just welcomed into, into uh, the community or welcomed into the country, but welcomed into conversations about Christ, you know. There's a great scripture where, you know, Martha, uh, Mary, or was it Mary or Martha, one of the two of them, there's, it's just... So There's just one tiny little line. It said they opened the door to Christ so that he could mm. come in the house, mm. you know, and that's the basis mm. of all the hospitality we do is they open the door for the Holy Spirit to work. And you just set the stage um, celebrating milestones together, a card at a child's graduation or a wedding or anniversary, encourage them in their citizenship. Um, our church is known to throw citizenship celebrations oh, neat. Uh, for people. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting. Most Muslim people expect you to share something of your faith with them. Hmm. It is the Oriental way. And as you reach out, you think of loving your neighbors as groups, not as individuals. This is totally counterintuitive to how we think. And it's a huge cultural difference. But they want to be included in groups. They want us to share our faith. They expect us to. Yeah. Every second sentence they speak is full of God. So yes. we don't need to be shy about sharing our faith. Um, as we reach out, we keep it man-to-man, woman-to-woman. You'll avoid a lot of cultural headaches <laughs> and a lot of misunderstandings good tip. by respecting their cultural gender boundaries, right? And, um, you know, the system, you know, Islam is a, it's a, it's a broken system. Um, we can criticize the system, but we have to love the people. The Islamic State itself, I can tell you guys, oversees it may be the best tool for evangelism. The brutality Mm. of the Islamic State is driving jihadis to find Christ. Mm. Wow. They sign up for it. They get involved with it. They realize that they're being used as pawns because it's never the people at the top that are being sent on these missions. They're always the pawns. They're always the low people. They get involved. They see the cost. They see that it's going to cost them their soul. And they decide there has to be a better way. 
there has to be a better way than on the killing, the constant killing, the carnage, the brutality. It gets to people after a while. Also, you guys probably have heard this, that Christ is appearing to Muslims. And I know we're Reformed people. I'm, I'm fully Reformed. <laughs> I believe in the Westminster Confession of Faith. But there are just some things that my faith in, you know, in, in Christ, that I don't have categories for it. Right. Amen. But, Amen. And Christ is appearing to people in the Muslim world in such great numbers that it's become commonplace. Mm. They're not abnormal stories anymore. It's, this is ordinary. So, you know, this, we, we think that, you know, what can God do in, in these horrible situations? He comforts those who've lost. He gives them purpose and redemption and meaning in the midst of their loss. He doubles down uh, and, and affirms that he is the God of all nations. He's the God of all salvation. And he is drawing people to himself even in the midst of these horrible atrocities. So, so is now and and especially uh, it's always a ripe time for missions, but it seems like now um, there's a great need uh, with Muslims and a great opportunity that um, maybe in our lifetimes we haven't, haven't seen yet or something like that. Is that something you would comment on or encourage folks yeah, I do every day. Yep. <laughs> I think I try to. Um, Jesus tells us, he tells us in the world we will have trouble. Uh, but take heart, I've overcome the world. I work very closely with people who live this reality every day. So, yeah, I see these things. and But I also see that there's a, as these things increase, there's a much higher um, there's a much higher calling. There's a much higher understanding. There's a much deeper and more difficult application. And so what I've been trying to do is um, kind of create a space where the church can start to get ready to think in these ways, to think more communally. We don't, you know, when, when Muslims come out of Islam and they come into Christianity it's, Muslims do community really, really well. There are places where the community gets twisted, but by and large, they do community much better than we do. The gay community does community very well. Mm-hmm. The Christian, we, we could learn a lot from how these folks do community because when a, when a Muslim comes out of Islam, they come to Christ and they look around and they say, where is the ummah? Where is the community? And we have to, we have to start creating those places among ourselves so that, you know, when the, when the baby is born, you're in a comfortable place to hold the baby, you know? Wow. It, I mean, um, it reminds, it, reminds me of Acts 2, uh, that they mm-hmm. held everything in common, that they were praying together, going uh, to worship together, and they just, they, the, the fabric of their lives was, was knit together so that when you became a Christian, you did become part of a, a new community, a new family um, mm-hmm. that was closer even than your biological family in many cases. In some ways, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so we, this is, a, you know, this is many different spokes to the wheel or the, the web that I'm, you know, that me and my other uh, friends are trying to weave uh, for the, the church in America is to understand that, you know, we, we think we're disconnected from the, uh, from the global church, we're actually really disconnected from each other here in the West. <laughs> and so true. how do we start? How do we start creating those spaces? How do we start cultivating those places? A lot of churches do it well, and some churches not so well. But as a community, as a global community, and you know, just trying to find those places 
Um, the community is just one area uh, where we are we are going to have to make I think make some serious adjustments for the the reality of where we are today and where we're going. Um, and I think that's something you know, that you know, as it, we're the Reformed African American Network, we do have a global um, area of concern because that's what Christ tells us to have. But I also think there's, um, in this day and age, an opportunity for historically marginalized people like people of African descent have been in America to help be a, a, a take the lead on certain things in terms of, of helping to show the church and teach the church certain things. And so uh, African Americans have always had to think of themselves in some sense collectively because we've been treated mm-hmm. as a group. Um, and, mm-hmm. and we can always do community better, but I do think there's, there's something to be said for minority people groups, marginalized people groups who, who have had through, you know, social constrictions or, or whatever, mm-hmm. have had to think communally, have yeah. had to think corporately. So, you know, I just invite folks to learn from you know, people who haven't necessarily written the systematic theology textbooks, Amen. But, but do have a lot to offer in terms of faith Amen. and wisdom. Absolutely. Amen. Yeah, you know, that's one of my um, biggest uh, things that I write about is the how the how the African American church persevered and thrived under persecution, and how they you know it's very similar to the same dynamic, very similar to the dynamics that you see in North Korea today, that you mm. see in Vietnam. Mm. Um, that you see in um, in uh, the rural areas of Turkey, uh, where there's social uh, hostility. It may not be violent necessarily, but it's social. You know, so yeah, accessing the the ways of our um, our ancestors is is huge. We, I think the and I think that the African American Church has a great deal to offer Christianity, American Christianity, in that regard. So catch us up a little bit on 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 what you're doing these days. Uh, what are you working on? What should we uh, look for from you? What's ex- what's exciting to you right now? Mm-hmm. Well, there's lots exciting. I'm I've, um, I'm working with an organization called International Christian Response, and they are Swiss. They're based in Switzerland, and we have uh, ministries in. Well, we have partners on the ground in 38 different countries. We don't send Western missionaries anywhere. Mm. <laughs> Sorry, Western missionaries. We work with ind- <laughs> we work with indigenous leaders on the ground because they know the culture, they know the the ins and outs, they know the community, um, and so we are about empowering them on the ground. And then we have program directors that are over each region uh, uh, that serve those countries. So we do everything from uh, provide legal aid, discipleship training, pastoral training. Um, we help church planters start churches in hostile regions. Um, and we do a number of things that I can't talk about in public, but, uh, we're very busy. Um, we're like, we move, uh, we're a very stealth organization. Um, it has a public face in the West, but a, a private arm once you get to a certain level of, um, of security clearance. So that's great. I love that work. I'm really enjoying it. It's bittersweet. Um, mm-hmm. we lose people. Um, I was, I was just watching the international justice mission lost their three workers and my heart just, my heart just, (sighs) it's really hard to lose a partner on the ground. International justice mission lost three last week, um, to violence. Uh, they were targeted because of the humanitarian work they were doing. And, um, you know, those, those kinds of events make workers in this particular arena and they make you question, you know, why you're doing what you're doing. Should you keep doing what you're doing? 
are you safe doing what you're doing? And, you know, we just kind of commonly accept that we're not. Um, but, you know, how that plays out in everyday life when you're, you know, crossing borders and um, praying as you're crossing, um, watching people be gunned down in the car ahead of you. It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's got a lot of challenges. So um, prayers go out to International Justice Mission for Healing. And um, I pray that those people that murdered the three workers will be brought to justice and, and also to knowledge of Christ. Mm. in the process. Yeah. And so that's one thing that I'm doing is working with ICR, uh, that kind of work. And the next, the other thing that's exciting is um, I have a column coming up with Christianity Today. Wow. Uh, Yeah, I'm excited about it. Thank you. Yeah, it starts in September. Um, I've submitted my first article for editing and I'm working with Mark Galley, who I love and respect and appreciate and I'm looking forward to getting to know him more. And so I'm going to be talking about um, the connection between um, persecution overseas and some of the dynamics that contribute towards persecution and looking at the rise of anti-Christian hostility in the United States and kind of going back and forth between the two. So I'm excited about that. And then uh, I get to go back to Oxford and try and become the doctor that you guys keep calling me and telling me that I am. <laughs> so I do that. Already, but not yet. Already. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. yes well, I like to tell people if when you call me that, you're speaking proleptically. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, so I, I'm doing that in, at the end of the summer. So, and I love going over there because, um, you know, it's, it's such a, it's such an international scene. There's so many students from, it was founded by subdominant cultural people for subdominant cultural studies. And so you go over there and you find so many commonalities, um, and yet, you know, the dynamics are different because they're in um, different contexts. But, you know, the subdominant cultural reality is, is um, there are a lot of similar dynamics all over the world, and uh, there's a lot for us to be linked up and a lot for the church to learn from because, hey, we are supposed to be living the subdominant cultural reality. That's the way the Bible was written, so... Well, I also want to take this opportunity to mention that you're doing a weekly roundup for us on yes. Rand. Yay! <laughs> I love it. I, yes. I love being able to share those stories. Yeah. Uh, people I've have been so much. People so have been very it. appreciative um, and very complimentary of it. And it's just, I, I wish that, you know, I try and balance um, glo- local, lo- global and local and, you know, good positive stories with, oh, this one's a little bit hard. Yeah. You, you got to enter in this, into this one with me, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I really appreciate that opportunity um, to oh, do the roundup. Yeah. We, it, it, it's, it's, um, so helpful for us because I know one of my struggles is, you know, knowing the right sources to trust about international news, also keeping mm-hmm. up with it. Uh, so you're doing a wonderful job kind of, um, you know, curating that information. And so for folks listening, it comes out every Friday. Uh, uh, it's called We Persevere. And it's just um, a few links that Karen puts together with a short summary of the article. She also includes some some you know, further resources like different books that you can access if you want to go deeper. So that comes out every Friday. We've already done, what have we done, four so far? Five. Five so far. So So Mm -hmm. go back and check those out if you want to learn more about what we've been talking about on this episode. Um, Karen, you're a wonderful, uh, you know, servant of Christ and resource to the church, and we're so thankful for you and for your time. Thank you very much. I appreciate you guys so much. Thanks so much for all you do and for keeping our eyes at home and abroad. Much appreciated. We want to thank Karen Ellis for joining us on this episode of Pass the Mic. You can learn more about her at KarenAngelaEllis.com. You can also follow her on Twitter at K underscore A underscore Ellis. 
As always, you can learn more about the Reformed African American Network by visiting randnetwork.org. You can follow the network on Twitter at randnetwork, as well as the show at underscore pass the mic. And don't forget to like us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Reformed African Americans. Pass the mic is a collaborative effort between the Reformed African American Network and Pottery Studios. Visit Pottery.com to discover the highest in quality online audio entertainment. Our produce, producer for this show is Bo York, and our co-host has been Jamar Tisby, and I've been your host, Tyler Burns, and we'll see you soon on the next Pass, Pass the Mic. mic. You've been listening to Pass the Mic, a Pottery production. To find out more about this and other shows, visit Pottery.com. That's P-O-D-A-S-T-E-R-Y dot com.